Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, today's guest is Michelle Rosenthal. Uh, she's coming to us from Jupiter, Florida. I'm excited because Jupiter, Florida has uh, the lighthouse, the inlet lighthouse. And I have a thing for lighthouses. I don't know what it is, but uh, there's just something cozy, comfortable. I like tight spaces. I, it's my ADHD. Whatever. All right. That, that, that's not part of her intro, people. Um, she's a trauma recovery specialist. So I'm super excited to talk to her. She's going to talk to us about overcoming our fears and reclaiming control over our health, our wealth, and our relationships. And what I really love is that she's also going to share with us how to end the emotional chaos and reclaim control, right? How to, how to, how to navigate our way out of triggers and symptoms and terror and into freedom, peace, and calm. Oh, oh, during these times, that's what we need right now. Michelle Rosenthal, welcome to the podcast. Leo Flowers, it is great to be here with you. And um, one of the really special things actually about that lighthouse, did you know that we have an outside yoga class at that lighthouse at sunset? Oh, oh, you see, you don't need to say anymore. I'm here. there. I need to. <laughs> I am there. Yeah. Yoga. I feel like you did some yoga this morning. Like you got a <laughs> yoga vibe to you. Dude, I do yoga every morning. Every I, morning. I, Everything I wake up between 5:30 and 6:30 every day so that I have my my me time before the day begins and this is you know when I came out of my trauma recovery I knew my my symptoms were gone but just because your recovery is finished it doesn't mean you're finished right so I work my recovery every day to make sure I sustain it and now I mean we're talking over 15 years but um, I still every day starts with exercise journaling meditation breath work and yoga so that by the time I actually enter into the day it's from a place of deep internal connection with who I am. And that I think is one of the most powerful things that answers what you were talking about just a moment ago. How do we do all this? It's creating that deep internal connection with your own identity before you even do anything else in a day. I definitely want to do a deep dive into the specifics on your journaling, your exercise, your breath work, uh, because it looks so different for so many different people, whether you're doing alternate nostril breathing, or some uh, pranayama, nama, 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 nama. I never know how to pronounce that word. Um, <laughs> but there, there's so many different definitions for trauma. Uh, how are mm -hmm. you defining trauma? That is one of my favorite questions. And I'll tell you because I, well, before COVID, um, but even now I, I still do this, but before COVID, I, I do a lot of speaking about trauma and recovery around the country. And, and with every engagement, no matter how big the audience is, I always start with this one exercise and we can do this here, you and I and your audience. Okay. So, so pop quiz and don't worry, cause you're all going to pass. But the pop quiz is this, if you've ever had an experience that feels less than good, stand up and move to the right. And if you've ever not had an experience that feels less than good, stand up and move to the left. And so you can imagine when I'm doing this in a room with hundreds or thousands of people, everybody stands up and moves to the right. And then I, and I say to everybody, well, look to the left side of the room. Where, where are all the people that should be over there? 
and nobody's over there. And of course, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous question. There is not a single person on the planet that has never had an experience that feels less than good. Now, why do I love this little pop quiz? Because immediately when we're all taking a step to the right, you recognize and are easily aware of how the playing field is level. We are all trauma survivors because, and I got this from Judy Crane. She's the founder of The Refuge, a healing place, which is an incredible place here in Ocala, Florida. And I had a podcast for several years. I interviewed all of the leading trauma experts, neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, all that. And when I interviewed Judy, she said to me, the baseline definition of trauma is any experience that feels less than good. So I like to start there, Leo, because when we realize that, then trauma is the norm versus it's this thing that separates and isolates us. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, the thing that comes to mind when we talk about any experience that is that feels less than good, um, I think about TV and, mm. and social media, because I, as I'm getting older, I'm 45 now, and I'm becoming more aware of what I'm how what I'm watching makes me feel mm. uh, and and I, I'm I'm noticing that certain shows because they're so intense or they might be so violent or just triggering for whatever reason like, are just creating these sensations that make me feel less than good uh, whether it's a heart palpitation or tightness or shortness of breath and I'm like wow I'm here I am in my sitting on my couch air condition and yet um, um i'm in this kind of fight or flight mode and i was like i don't know if i like this anymore when i when you're young you're kind of seeking out these exciting experiences and movies that you know like yeah get the bad guy and now as i get older i'm like oh, oh, do we need to get the bad guy can't we just like let this go and, and breathe through it or, you know, uh, journal about it? Like, isn't there a better <laughs> way of coping with this? <laughs> you know, it's, it's such an interesting topic, right? Because I went through a phase in um, in high school and I don't know if it was. So my trauma happened. I was 13. And so after that, it was really distorted in my thinking and, and very messed up. But so I don't know if this was a, a coincidence or like maybe all teens go through this. I wrote an op-ed about this for the Orlando Sentinel a few years ago because I find it so fascinating. What is it about, and this is, you know, perfect timing right now because we're recording this in October. So it's that time of year where more horror movies come out. Um, but even, even in the evergreen sense of listeners listening to the replay at another time of year, what is it about those movies or TV shows that make us so riveted in that heart pounding, shallow breathing, I'm, I'm going to explode these suspenses so intense. What is it about that? And here's my theory. I think we love those things because it's a vicarious way for us to see, can I handle it? Because at the bottom of all fear, and if you've ever read Susan Jeffers' fantastic book about fear, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, that tiny little book that has this great nugget in it, she says that at the bottom of all fear is one thought, and the thought is, can I handle it? And I think that is profound. And I think that's partly why we like to sit through 
really scary movies until we get old enough to realize, crap, yeah, I, I think I've figured it out. I can handle it. And I don't need to watch this stuff and make myself feel that way anymore. So I don't know, Leo, it could be a sign of maturity that you're just like, mm, not doing it anymore because I'm pretty sure I can handle anything now. You know what? You struck a chord with me. There's a movie mm. called Nocturnal Animals. Uh, it's, a, it's a Tom Ford movie. Mm. And there's a scene in a, in a very beginning where uh, a family is driving, a father's driving a car, wife, two daughters in the back seat, and there's this car that pulls up and it's harassing them. They're on like this dark road. Uh, and then finally their, their tire blows out and then the guys start harassing them and it quickly escalates from there. Mm. And to this day, I'm constantly replaying the scene of what would I do? Mm. father with my wife two daughters and then this carload of guys four guys they have guns knives and they're threatening my family mm. how do i get myself out of that situation mm -hmm. and i keep replaying it because i haven't found an answer so you're right that that idea of watching it over and over again because you're trying to find that space of where how can i handle this and how would I handle it? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the reason why I can't watch Squid Game. It's on Netflix right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to be any of those characters. I, I don't want to know how to handle it. Like, it's, it's terrifying from both directions. So, yeah, I really appreciate you mentioning that because that makes sense of, of a part of our allure to these types of shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think also why we get to grow out of it eventually because you know, I mean, as a comedian, you get heckled, right? And you don't worry when you get on stage of, can I handle a heckler? You know your comedic skills and how good you are on your feet. And when a comedian is on stage and there's a heckler and that comedian is you and that heckle comes, and I've seen some of your clips, you call out the audience, like you go after them, which is part of the fun of it, right? But it works. And you're comfortable doing that because you don't know in advance what the heckle's going to be. You don't know in advance what you're going to say specifically, but you do know no matter what they say, I've got this, I can handle this. And I think partly it's that trust in ourselves that allows us to overcome fear because you may not know exactly what you would do in that situation that the movie shows. But if someone put you in that situation, I'm pretty confident you would figure it out because you have the experience that you have, because you have the knowledge that you have, because you have the the skills and the training and the intelligence that you have. And there's something about the mind that just brings down a wall that says, I'm not going there if I don't need to. But if we are in there, like I think of my parents during my trauma, like there was nothing that could have prepared them for what happened to me. And yet they were amazing and they were in the dark, right? There was no one helping them. There was no one supporting them. What happened to me was bizarre and weird and it was a medical trauma and even the entire hospital didn't know how to help me. But my parents stood in that space and thought, quickly and creatively what do we do now what do we do now and i think that's that's the biggest question for each of us to ask ourselves in any 
less than good situation. What do I do now? Because where we get stuck is the why question, right? Why is this happening to me? Why me? <laughs> why me? But when we flip into what now, what now, what now, I feel pretty confident, Leo, that you would know what to do to protect yourself, your wife, your daughters, because it will come to you in that moment that you need it simply when you hold the space for the download. If you have developed a connection to yourself in which you, you have a bit of confidence. So you, you mentioned something, Michelle, that, and I love saying Michelle, like it's almost <laughs> like you're my shell, you know, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said that your parents were able to respond quickly and creatively. And I want to drill down on that word creatively because mm -hmm. I think there's so much emphasis on knowing and understanding or learning a thing. And we don't emphasize creativity in terms mm -hmm. of responding to situations. And you can't really teach creativity. Like I can, I can teach you two plus two is four and four plus eight is 12 and things like that. Like the, the what was that? Uh, not abstract, but um, concrete thinking, mm -hmm. but um, creativity comes from being cool, calm, collected, like you said, connected to yourself. And I think people don't have confidence in their creativity because it's not really, we don't really measure it and we don't honor it in schools. Well, that's such an interesting door in this conversation, because before I was a trauma recovery specialist, I taught at a university in Manhattan, and I actually did teach creativity. And I developed creativity across the curriculum as a, an entire approach for the university, and I got a grant to implement it. And I do think we can teach creativity, and it starts with what you were saying. I think we have to remove the fear. Because when you remove the fear, which to me is part of teaching creativity, because people don't realize why they're not creative. They don't feel a sense of freedom. They don't feel an ability. Creativity to me is putting together things that weren't together before, right? It's, it's not that there's, you're thinking of something new necessarily. It's that you're thinking of old things in a new way. And I know I, I'm a playwright, I'm a poet, I'm an author. So I know when I'm using language, the creativity of my thought process or the creativity of the language is putting together things in a new way that expresses a new experience for people. And when I was teaching creativity, we always started with what's your fear? What are your biggest fears about being creative? And then after that, what do you think? If you were to move away fear, what do you think that does to creativity? It allows for an expansiveness, I would assume, because it, even in uh, conversations and, and meeting people, when we uh, feel safe and we feel free mm -hmm. and we remove the fear, all of a sudden, we're not worried about saying the wrong thing or uh, you know, looking awkward because uh, we have confidence that we can bounce back from you know, the trip or the fall or you know, mispronouncing someone's name uh, or, or things like that. And, and I think that, um, that being creative, it, it's why I love watching bank robbery movies because you know that something's gonna go wrong and at some point you're gonna have to get creative. 
And uh, so we can do the same thing, you know, with our how we respond to our trauma experiences. I think that's absolutely right. And I think part of being creative is being willing to jump the track, right? Like we're all brought up that um, you have something bad happen to you and the way out is to talk about it. And, you know, with all due respect to your training, because I know you're you're psychologically trained, um, but I think there is a limit to how much we actually benefit from talking about our trauma like we need to stop talking about it and i know that my recovery really took off when i got really creative about it when i decided to stop talking and start dancing whoo the doors blew off and it was very interesting because i literally put my recovery on hold for six months and instead i danced seven nights a week and i had at that time i had moved from new york city to a this small beach town in florida and and like i had this brilliant idea like i need to dance i i feel better when i dance and i can transcend all this junk of who i've become and i was very ptsd at the time i you know suicidal ideation like the whole gig horrible insomnia deep depression and yet it, by accident, I ended up dancing on New Year's Eve one night and I, and I realized, oh my God, I feel different. So, so I had just moved to Florida and my brilliant idea was no more trauma recovery. I just need to dance and I'm going to dance every night. And then I remembered I was no longer in New York City and there was no nightclub that was open every night. And so I went and I signed up for a dance class every night of the week at a different local studio. So like Mondays was East Coast Swing, Tuesdays was um, Salsa and Cha-Cha, Wednesdays was West Coast Swing, Thursdays was Argentine Tango, Friday and Saturday were practice parties, and Sundays there's this huge dance, uh, this like enormous 2000 square foot dance place um, about 45 minutes south of where I live. And I would go down there from one in the afternoon until 10 at night. And, and I danced and danced and, and used the creativity of dance as a sort of reset for my mental and my physical health. Now, this is way back before all the neuroscience came out. And, you know, Bessel van der Kolk now will talk about how great Argentine tango is for PTSD recovery. But there was none of that when I was doing it. It was just a creative impulse to reconnect with myself in a way that was outside the norm. And I think that can, you know, that, that just brings up how useful creativity can be in overcoming fears because sometimes those fears are embedded in neurological imprints that are language oriented but more often than not they are in unconscious habituated programs that do not have language because so often we embed experience through a limbic system that is intensely emotional and actually lacks language and so you know, finding a creative way to access and change all that, we have to think out of the box. And I don't know, I could keep going on this. It's so fascinating. So I'll just hit the pause button there and see what you think. The dance part really resonates with me because when, when I study, you know, mankind over the centuries and, um, you know, thousands of years, dance has always been a part of our culture. No matter uh, w whether you're talking about north of the hemisphere or south of the hemisphere 
or, uh, you know, black, white, no matter what your religion was, no matter how strict a culture was, dance was always a part of it. And it was our way of communing, right? <laughs> like we, we would spend the day doing our chores, hunting, gathering, what have you. And at night, then we'd feast, uh, you know, uh, whether we're throwing, you know, food on a fire and then you have the storytellers gathering around telling you, you know, uh, stories of their, um, their, their explorations and adventures. And then dance was always a part of it. It's a part of weddings. It's a part of funerals. It's just a part of, uh, it was always a part of our, uh, our, 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 our um, muscle, not muscle fiber, but cultural and, and it's embedded in our DNA to, mm. to move and, and, and to do it daily. Um, I have a friend, my mom, she works with a lady who um, has dementia. She was a neurosurgeon and now mm. she has dementia. Wow. And, you know, she's kind of like, uh, like when a robot is just shut down for the most part, right? However, I put my headphones on her one day and it was playing Andrea Bocelli because she loves uh, opera. Gorgeous. And she just came to life. It was like somebody flipped on all the light switches. She started singing and moving. And then when I took the headphones off, she just shut back down again. And it just, it was a reminder of the power of music and emotions. And, and I think so many people getting caught up in this stoicism of like, uh, you know, keep a game face on 24 um, seven. There, but there is something about, because the other part of dancing is, you're doing it with other people. It's a group activity. So you're getting that oxytocin. You're, 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 and there's no rules to dancing. So there, once again, we go back to the freedom of expression. You can move your body however you want to. I think that's why drum circles are becoming so popular. Yeah. Um, and then you're working up a sweat, you know? And, and what better way to tuck yourself in, it, in bed at night to relieve yourself <laughs> of your, you know, I think a lot of people have insomnia. You're talking about insomnia. Because we go from sitting down at work all day, and then we come home, sit on the couch, watch Netflix, and then we go to bed. And at no point have we really released the tension except through, like, food, drugs, alcohol, sex. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a really good point. And I also just want to bring up, you know, for, for people who, who don't feel comfortable dancing in front of other people, I think it's just important to call out it. Like you get all of those benefits, even from dancing by yourself. I was horribly depressed in college and I used to literally, my, my roommate would go to work and I would lock the door to our room and I would, you know, I'm an, <laughs> I, I was raised in the eighties. So I'm an eighties girl, all that really cool eighties um, import music because I really loved English music. And I would just put on all of that music and I would dance for two hours and I would cry and I would, I would dance and cry all by myself, you know, crying and dancing at the same time until I was sweaty and exhausted and spent. So I, I think, you know, it, it's as often as we can dance with other people, that's great. And I also just want to sort of call out the fact that moving your body and being able to emote, I mean, I was freestyle back then. Now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Latin dancer. So there's a lot of partner work and styling to that, but, but whether you're, no matter how you're dancing, you are emoting 
because the music is coming through you and you are expressing it however it comes through you. And so I think there's value, whether you're dancing with other people or alone, whether you have a partner or you don't, the value of dance is huge in its physiological, emotional, mental, and spiritual um, elements. And, and I think the thing that you brought up that's so awesome to remember is you're right. It's been a part naturally of who we are culturally around the globe for all time. And so it's a very accessible process. Even if you've never been comfortable dancing before, you can always just tap your toe to the beat to begin with until you, the beat starts to move through you. Oh, yeah. I, it, it's so sad to me when I see uh, music programs being taken out of schools, you know, mm. uh, because they're emphasizing what, what's the STEM like science, um, math, whatever the T and the E are in schools. And, and we forget about uh, the how kids need to move and need to be moved um, and, and need to feel uh, mm. instead of uh, drugged and. Um, just, and I know some schools are getting better at that. I see yoga in more and more schools. Uh, I just I just looked it up though, Michelle. Uh, there's a uh, an officer, Ed Pia, who was in Detroit, and he was able to uh, work his way through trauma using the Argentine tango. Mm -hmm. So that's fascinating to me because uh, Michelle, my girlfriend's name's Michelle. Uh -huh. and, ah, and she's and she's been trying to get me to sign up for uh some dance oh. classes yeah i'm like i'm not doing no dance classes but now but oh now, leo oh leo 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 let me school you dude please please talk to okay me. write this down go tan project like g-o-t-a-n g-o-t-a-n project and narco tango and I just want you to listen to the, that, the music of both of those groups. And you tell me if you don't feel like dancing. Because what we all have in our mind. So first of all, full disclosure, Women's Day did a two-page spread on how I use dance in my PTSD recovery. And they included pictures of me and my partner doing Argentine tango. Because here's, here's like the Hollywood ending of all of this. I started to dance because it was like, I was going to either dance or kill myself. And I ended up in an Argentine tango class because the, a woman in my salsa class on Wednesday said, if you like salsa or no Tuesday, if you like salsa, come to the Thursday Argentine tango class. And I walked into that class and it was an advanced class. So obviously I didn't know what I was doing. And there was an instructor and an assistant instructor and the instructor said to me just the assistant's gonna just work with you privately today because you cannot join this class and the studio was large he was like you just go to the other side of the studio with this guy and he will get you started and uh, that was that was april 2007. wow and as of today it's october 2021 and i am still dancing with that guy wow on the dance floor, off the dance floor, he is my man. Because there is something, and I'm not saying this happens with everybody, but if you have a good connection with Michelle, there, there is nothing about Argentine tango that is anything less than sensual 
connected, romantic, partnership oriented. And there's a big difference between original Argentine tango. And I'm saying this, I know we're getting a little off topic, but for those of you who really want to heal and are looking for some new thing to do, Argentine tango, they, they've done studies on it. Bessel van der Kolk writes about it, talks about it. So we're not really off topic. Um, but Argentine tango is, has two movements, right? The original, which is, in my opinion, really boring, crappy music <laughs> that's like from the 1920s, or the the neo tango, which is really sensual and romantic, and I defy anyone to listen to that music and not immediately want to get on the floor and find a partner. So, so you can tell Michelle, I wholly support the idea that you guys start dancing because I, to me, I think any any couple that can get on a dance floor together, it's very interesting how you interact with each other on the dance floor, how you solve problems on the dance floor is a reflection of how you do it off the dance floor. And what you learn as partners on the dance floor gets taken off the dance floor and makes really strong relationships. So I think it's, um, it's great, not just for the, the survivor going through recovery, because at the time that I met, his name is John, when I met John, I was, I was in the deep end of the pool, right? And he stood by me through the rest of my recovery. And um, I think it's a very unique way to start accessing a connection. And this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. You have to develop a connection to your own self in order to heal trauma. You have to find some way, and especially most trauma survivors, we are disconnected from self, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually virtually trauma affects all four realms dance causes you and especially partner dance but all dance causes you to be very in the minute and in connection with yourself because you are translating what you're hearing in your mind down into your body and then when we take that into an argentine tango class or really whatever kind of dance somebody wants to do partner wise now you really have to focus in the moment because either you're the leader or the follower you can't be like imagining in your head, like I used to replay my trauma over and over, like you cannot do that and follow a lead. So it automatically shuts down that part of your brain that loops to the past because you so have to focus in the present. And it's a great training tool for that. Six months of dance and I was sleeping better. The nightmares were less frequent and I had a ton of energy and um, courage to go back into trauma recovery work and freaking get it done. And um, so I think there's great value in, in, in the whole realm of, of what, what dance can do, not only for the person who's in recovery, but for the partner as well, because, you know, we, we never talk about the partners who are supporting survivors in recovery. They, they are, they are unsung heroes. They are amazing people. And they also need something that allows them to feel connected to themselves and to us and to have an experience that allows them something outside of the norm. And so I think dance offers that on both sides of the survivor recovery equation. And the way that it reduces fear is phenomenal because you start to feel more empowered in your physical self. Every single time you step on a dance floor, you are making an empowered decision. 
I can do this. And what parts feel uncomfortable, I can manage to find a way to make it feel more comfortable. And I just, I wish there were more programs that incorporated dance into trauma recovery um, on, on a consistent basis, because I think it's really powerful work. I'm thinking about Tim Ferriss. I don't know if you know Tim Ferriss. I is. do. And he he's an Argentine tango dancer yeah, and, and award-winning tango have, dancer. Have you done his podcast? No. Uh, no. Yeah, because I'm like, you two would like, I, I could tell you two would just have like an amazing episode. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know him, but um, I know people have been on his podcast. So hope, maybe I could make that connection in some way. That but, would uh, be awesome. I would love to chat with him. Yeah, you two would be amazing. I, I want to go back a little bit because you talked about um, how at 13, the, the your trauma was uh, medically based. Can you tell us more about that, you know, to your comfort level? Oh, yeah, sure. Actually, I, I'm, I'm comfortable talking about anything and everything, um, I, which is a funny thing for me to say, because for 17 years after my trauma, I couldn't talk about it at all. I, I really um, I had this image in my head that if I spoke what had happened to me, I would need to be put into a padded room, a small cell in a straitjacket, because the fear and the terror that went along with the memories I didn't feel I could handle, but um, now I can handle it wholly and completely. So let's just, I will do it to the comfort level that I think is appropriate for all of you listening. And then if you want to know more, you're, you're welcome to, you know, just Google me, come to my website. The details are there, but essentially I had, I was 13, it was 1981 and I was 13. I had a run of the mill infection doctor. My doctor was on vacation. It was the end of the summer. The covering doctor did not look in my chart to read any of the notes. He just said, you've got this infection and here's what we're going to do for it. Gave me an antibiotic and that antibiotic just about killed me. Uh, they, No one had told my parents that they suspected I was allergic to that antibiotic. And so when I took it, in fact, I was allergic. And what that really meant was my body could not metabolize the antibiotic. And so what it did was send it out through the skin. So essentially within a matter of days, I was a full body burn victim inside and out, head to toe, and put it into a quarantine burn unit room in a teaching hospital in New York City. But Back then, nobody knew what was happening. So it took them over a week to diagnose. <laughs> now, when people have this, because it's like one in two million people that it happens to, but now the protocol is immediately these patients are put into a coma, medically induced coma, and you stay like that until it's over, which I think is really preferable because a lot of you know the trauma, I, there's trauma either way, but I, I think uh, a lot of the trauma gets subverted if you're not conscious for it, right? I was conscious the whole time. So if you think about being burned head to toe, there's no escape. You're trapped in a body that is essentially on fire and damaged. And um, the fear of being in that position, compounded by the fear of the fact that no medical professional knew what was happening or knew what to do. So there was no sense of like, this is all going to be okay. It was like every day is a free fall into, we don't know what's coming. And then I had a near death experience because this 
this condition um, has a high mortality rate. So um, when I came out of all of that weeks later, I knew essentially that physically I was going to make a full recovery. Like you can see me, Leo. And for those of you who, who find me online, I don't look like a burn victim because uh, what happens is the skin comes off in sheets. So you're left with burns, but it's not disfiguring. Um, and I was very lucky because my parents were amazing. I've, I've met and talked with other survivors of this. They, they do have more physical scarring on their face, for example. I have it on my body and in my eyes and other places. But um, I knew that, that I would make a full physical recovery. But I was very aware right away I was not okay in my head. Who I had been before my trauma was not at all who I was after. And I fell into that place of um, that so many of us fall into after trauma. Like, I just want to go back to who I was. And it took me a really long time to realize that you can't do that. You can't do that at all. And, and I think a lot of us get stuck in what I call the gap. You know, you're not who you were before. You don't know who you're supposed to be after. And so you just fall into the gap of that abyss of not knowing and fear and overwhelmment um, for however long you stay there until you figure out how to get out. Yeah, I definitely experienced that after I was done playing college football. I had a, a neck injury. I was paralyzed. Mm. And, you know, rediscovering my identity after that, um, it, it took a while it, it, because I felt like I, I didn't have anybody to talk to. I wasn't doing Argentine tango. Um, you know, I just, I, there were, I wasn't equipped with any type of, uh, coping skills of, of how to navigate that space. Uh, and, and, and in some ways I'm still searching cause there's a part, you know, I'm all once an athlete, always an athlete. So in my head, I'm, I'm still 21 and should be able to put the pads on and play. Mm. Uh, but, but, but my knees say otherwise. So, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm learning to accept that, that part of me. The, you talked about uh, experiencing insomnia, depression, suicidality. Was that linked to that or was that uh, something separate? Uh, well, so, no, it was all together. So in 1981, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder only became a real diagnostic assessed code, if you will, in 1980. And it was only being applied to Vietnam veterans, not civilian kids with medical trauma. So in 19, 1981, when I started immediately having all kinds of symptoms, I, as an insomniac, like 13 year olds are not insomniacs, right? They just aren't. <laughs> and, uh, and, and control freak and mood swings and rage, the enormous amount of rage. Now that was none of that was who I was before. And, you know, just quickly, for those of you who don't know what post-traumatic stress disorder is, there's acute stress, which lasts 30 days after a trauma, while your mind wraps its, itself around what just happened and makes it an integrative part of who you are. At 30 days later, if your mind hasn't been able to do that and you have recurring nightmares, looping and intrusive thoughts, if you're hyper aroused all the time, expecting some bad thing to happen or feeling a, a, a lack of safety, if you have a complete avoidance of anything that reminds you of your trauma, if you have mood swings that are fast, all of these things can be signs 
30 days and beyond, when they start to dysregulate a lifestyle, those can be signs of PTSD. But in 1981, nobody recognized that because no one was thinking about PTSD and a kid. So my my parents took me to a, a psychiatrist because I was not okay. And I refused to talk to her because I was terrified that I would just have a mental, um, some kind of mental meltdown that nobody would be able to save me. I, I felt inside like I was going to go crazy from what happened to me. So the thing that I did was pretend it didn't happen, don't talk about it, rage at anybody who brings it up until my family got silent. And, 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 and then those symptoms, PTSD does not spontaneously heal itself. It's more like um, we have bleeding heart. I don't know if you have this where you are, but we have bleeding heart vines here in Florida and you can pull them out. You can cut them back. It does not matter. They will find a way to grow. And PTSD is like that. It will keep growing and the vines get lush until you decide to actually like really annihilate it. And um, so many years went by, 17 years before I even admitted to my mom that something was wrong, although she'd been telling me for all that time, you need help. And I just kept telling her, you're the problem. I'm fine. You need help because that's what we do, right? Blame other people. And, uh, and the depression was just really, really dark and deep. But I was... Um, I just ran as fast as I could to try to outrun it. So to, you know, it's a long-winded answer, but I just want to paint the picture. There's such a straight line from trauma to symptoms. And then those symptoms become a lifestyle and that lifestyle becomes a habit. And that habit becomes your default system. And then you're no longer engaged. You're just in the default mode. And so, yes, all of the, the, the suicidal ideation, the insomnia, the mood swings, the depression, all of that, I can tell you exactly the moments of my trauma that clung to me, that started all of that, that I never got help for, and that just proliferated and expanded within the soil of who I was until it was all of who I was. But I'm sure you've seen and heard that before. Yeah, you know, I, I love how you discuss the the progression of, you know, first there's the trauma and then the symptoms. And then I believe you said that leads to habits and then mm -hmm. then we start to disengage. Mm -hmm. Can you can you speak more to that? Because I, I, I think that that's so important that because a lot of times people are uh, moving through the world and thinking it's who they are and that they're making mm. conscious decisions and not realizing that the way they're moving through the world is in reaction to their trauma and uh, instead of being engaged conscious, consciously in the present moment. That's such an important point. And to be honest with you, for a really long time, I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. It was so natural for me to wake. I woke up every day terrified because I was just worried, like, if I could take an antibiotic that everyone thought was fine and it was, it almost killed me. I woke up every day, like, what, what could kill me today? And how am I going to keep myself safe today? And so, you know, one of the things that we do is we put in place addictions 
to help us manage. And I mean that word in the best possible way. I don't necessarily mean substance abuse or alcohol or sex or shopping or gambling, although all of those things apply. But we, we put in place addictions that help us create replicable patterns that we feel compelled to continue in because they feel normal and they give us a sense of being held in a framework that's understandable. So for example, um, I had, I had a beautiful eating disorder that really, really was debilitating, but it allowed me to feel safe in my body because the less I put in my body, the more safe I believed I was. And in a weird twisted trauma perspective, the more in pain and in danger my body was, the more I felt alive. So we end up with this, you know, trauma teaches us myths and lies and distortions. And in that intense moment of trauma, I mean, let's just talk about the brain. I don't know if you know the McLean triune brain model, which is oversimplified, but I love it for, for how it just so easily and effortlessly identifies and situates how the brain works and responds to trauma. So the oldest part of the brain is that brain stem at the back of the base of your skull. That's your reptilian brain that is really dedicated to your survival. And it just in a second will activate your sympathetic mode so that you fight, flee, freeze, or fawn is the fourth F. Then you have the, the mammalian part of the brain, which is the interior, the middle part, which is where your limbic system is. That's where your feelings are. And interestingly, the reptilian and the mammalian parts of the brain don't have language. There is no language in those parts of the brain. The part of the brain that has language is your neomammalian, that outer cortex, which is the youngest part of your brain, evolutionarily speaking. Um, and it shuts down during a trauma. So literally you embed the most intense moments of your trauma without any language. So you're not consciously walking around saying to yourself, oh my God, I feel so afraid. Instead, you're just feeling this intense fear and you will do anything to make it feel better. And that leads to habits that are the underlying unconscious programs that put us in default mode. I didn't make a single decision for years. I bounced around from 13. Really, I really started to fall apart when I got to college because held in, 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 the, in the structure of my family from 13 to 18, I was not okay, but I wasn't in a free fall. I got to college. I just like the world fell out from under me. So, so from 18 to 40, I was, I was just a real mess. And not one single day did I wake up and think, oh, I'm so frightened and I'm going to just be in default mode all day. I didn't realize that was happening until my recovery. And I started waking up in the morning feeling this, there, there's, um, I, I wrote a, memoir of my trauma and recovery. And there's a title, a title of a chapter that's called weird state of bliss. Because I started waking up during my recovery, feeling bliss, and I didn't understand what it was. And I was working with a hypnotherapist at, at the time. And I called her in this panic, like something really weird is happening. I feel really, really strange. And she said to me, will describe strange. What is it? And I said to her, I just feel this weird state of bliss. And she said, well, that's the point, Michelle, you know, you're healing. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, the way I've been waking up every morning, I thought was normal. I thought terror 
was how everybody woke up every morning. And that's what I mean, the unconscious programming that gets put in place that becomes this habituated experience that we have every day is a default mechanism and it becomes so normalized we don't even realize it's happening. Does that answer what you were wondering? Absolutely. Um, it, you know, it's kind of like we're in autopilot and we're not aware until somebody bumps into us or, you know, snaps their fingers like, hey, buddy. And you're like, whoa. You know, it's like that kind of sleepwalking across the street um, until you almost get hit by a car. And then you're like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I was I was in a trance or sleepwalking or not really yeah. paying attention. Um, and, you know, it's, it, you know, and I experienced that, too, like with food, you were talking about your eating. This, it's like when you get to the bottom of the bag of potato chips and you don't realize that you just ate nobody nobody picks up an entire bag and it goes i'm gonna eat this whole bag you just find <laughs> yourself finishing the entire bag so true so true and the thing is then also that the way out of all of that is to start realizing you have to start making choices. You have to start deliberately taking actions. So I got into some really bad relationships, for example, because I didn't choose anybody. Whoever wanted me could could frankly just have me. And I don't mean that in a sexual way. I just mean, if you wanted to date me, I'll date you because I didn't care. I didn't have criteria. I was just trying to make it through the day. So if you wanted to take me to dinner, I don't care. I'll show up for dinner. You want to take me out to a club? I don't care because I don't want to be home and trying to sleep anyway. So you end up in relationships that are really, you know, for me, I ended up in a very abusive relationship because I just didn't care every step of the way until the next thing you know, you're being not physically, but emotionally and verbally completely abused and living with someone and all of a sudden waking up one day and thinking, what the hell has happened? How did I get here? Because I wasn't even consciously making choices to be with this person. I was just in my own head trying to survive every day. And somehow I ended up with this guy. So I, I think it's, it's really important to start asking yourself, am I making choices or am I just default accepting what's coming my way? Because if that's what you're doing, that's a clue that you are way too disconnected from your own self, your own life, your own body, your own mind, your own emotions. And there's a reason for that. And there's a way out of that. But it starts with recognizing that's what's happening. So after, you know, we recognize what's happening recognition is is key first of all um are there steps to recognizing what's happening you know i know earlier you talked about journaling and i know that's helped me kind of discover patterns and recognize uh when i'm uh out of alignment so to speak mm. but or what are ways that people could recognize that they are not living consciously uh, what a beautiful question so let's take it slowly. I think one of the first ways to realize that you're not living consciously is to do an assessment of your life. Who's around you? What kind of experiences are you having? Are these experiences that make you feel good? Are these experiences that feed your soul? Are these experiences that drain your energy? Are these people that make you feel awful about yourself? Because when you just do a quick little assessment of what experiences am I having every day? And are they falling in the this feels good column or this feels bad column? 
if you have a very full this feels bad column and a very tiny or non-existent this feels good column then you have been too unconscious in your life and it's just an opportunity for you to realize i need to be more conscious because the more you become aware this feels bad the more you have an opportunity to choose what would feel better and it's not a matter of jumping like we can't go from despair to joy right it's too it's too big a leap but you can go from despair to curiosity uh, for example curiosity about what would feel better and you can go from curiosity to anticipation of what would feel better and you can go from anticipation to expectation that you will find something that feels better and you can go from expectation to hope that you find it soon and you can go from hope to belief that it's out there and you can go from belief to identifying what would feel better and you can go from identifying to looking for it so you can go through a series of just one step higher you know there are a lot of different teaching methods um, that talk about you know just reach for the better feeling thought and and part of that is don't try to make the leap too big make it something that's accessible that allows you to reclaim just a tiny little bit of control you know people think that healing is the big gesture like aha moments and the clouds part and angels start to sing and and i wish that were true but actually myself and all the people that i work with it, healing happens in those little moments that you decide like i did when I was being screamed and yelled at one night and I just suddenly it was really clear to me like I got to get out of this relationship I have to get out like I don't know how I'm going to do it but I need to consciously make the decision I have to get out and it's just sometimes that small because that is a healing step to be that conscious of this feels bad and I need to do something and so I think it starts just like that just starting to assess what feels good what feels bad and what decisions, choices, or actions are available to you to start moving yourself more toward what feels good and away from what feels bad. And let's also remember, you don't have to do it alone, right? So I was terrified. This guy was really abusive. How am I going to get myself away from him and be safe and not be stalked and all this stuff? And I didn't do it alone. I enlisted the help of friends and family so you don't always have to be alone you can do stuff alone certainly there was plenty of recovery stuff i did on my own but but in those moments where you feel like it would be really nice to have support here find the support that you need so that you can take that tiny step with with the energy of others holding you up yeah can you can you talk us through that because um in terms of you're in this abusive relationship and you're trying to get out because I know there's so many people who are in uh, abusive relationships, whether it's with their job, whether it's with mm -hmm. a significant other, and they don't know what the first steps are because it can feel like, it's, you know, in an abusive relationship, well, when I think of it, the other person is so controlling that mm -hmm. any move you make, you feel like they're going to be aware of. They, they're in your emails, your, uh, your text messages, your bank accounts all those things, what were your steps? How did you safely separate yourself from your abusive partner? So good question. And I actually had a very abusive boss. So I'm thinking of this 
parts in two ways. And I did it the same way, actually. I did it the same way. I'm very slowly. I am not a like one and done person. Like I have the thought and then I take the action. I'm more like a like a snail. I need to like really survey the landscape. I need to identify all possible outcomes, all possible options, all possible surprises along the way. And um, so, so, so I think it was May or June when I realized I needed to get out, but I didn't get out until September because it took me that long. Cause first you have to settle with your realization right? There's a settling period. When, when you come into consciousness, it's like coming back into the atmosphere from outer space. It's a, it's a different world. And so you just have to sort of reacclimate to, ooh, this feels different to be this conscious in this area of my life. So it takes a little bit of time to do that. And, and you need that time to acclimate before you take any actions because the actions are going to have reverberations. And and, and outcomes. So you need to acclimate first to the consciousness in that area, I think. And then, then you have to decide what you want your outcome to be. I always, I'm sure you've read um, Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I love the advice, start with the end in mind, because I think when, you know, from a neurological perspective, from an unconscious perspective, when you start holding the outcome that you want, your mind just starts to sort of calibrate how do i get back to here from there and and so there's a lot that can be done on the unconscious level on the conscious level once i decided what i wanted the outcome to be then i started telling the people closest to me here's where i am here's what i need to have happen and here here's what i'm planning and i started getting feedback from my mom from my dad from my brother like the people that i knew would be able to help me and and provide safety because not only do you need to know the end result that you want, you need to know how am I going to get there safely? What do I need to put in place so that I am safe through this process and beyond? And so it's becoming conscious. It's starting with the end, becoming conscious and acclimating, putting in place in your mind, the end result that you want, starting to share that vision with people that you trust so that you can get their input on how can I do this and be safe? And then, and then once I had all of that and I'd thought it over in my head and I knew, okay, like not this kind of day and not this kind of hour, not this kind of situation, I started whittling down. Like I wanted him to do something. I felt like if I initiated, I didn't know that I, I didn't know if I could control the outcome well enough. But if he did something that then I could respond to, I felt I could control the outcome better. And um, and that worked for me because I was not being physically abused. So I'm not saying this works for everyone. What I am saying is you have to decide what's the situation that you feel is game time, right? What's the moment that you're going to say, okay, game on, plan in action, go. And so I knew, okay, here's the situation that I know he's going to create at some point, and I am ready. I have my people in place. I have my plan in place. I have my actions in place. And now all I'm doing is waiting for the trigger. And once it happens, everybody knows their role and everybody knows the plan. And so that's how I did it, really slowly and really methodically, so that when the moment came, 
I was really clear. I'd rehearsed it in my head over and over. I knew what my role was. I knew what everybody else's role was. And I knew I, I knew that I had thought it through so that in the moment where I was going to feel really activated and frightened, and so your brain stops thinking clearly, I knew I'd already gotten the plan well thought out. And, and, and I think, you know, that's just a rough outline of what worked for me. What, what I think everyone really can take away is what's your outline? How does it work for you? What do you feel are the steps to free yourself? And then who can help? Because it's hard to do alone. And maybe it's people that you know, like I was lucky my family was there to support me, but maybe it's people you don't know. You know, I'm in involved with an organization here locally for battered women because they don't have people to help them. But this shelter, you don't need to know anybody. You just show up and you tell them, I need help. And boom, you have an instant support team. So so think about who you know, but also think about who you don't know that's out there waiting for you to reach out and say, I need help. Because it's just those three words that allow you to meet a stranger that's been a friend waiting for you to find them all along. I love that. I need help. That is, I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with. I mean, even for yeah. myself to say, I need help is so tough. I'm, I'm in a, a sugar addicts group and, you know, and everybody says, you know, call us, reach out whenever you need to. And I struggle with that. I'm like, ah, oh, it's too late. It's a weekend. It's a, I have all these excuses of why I can't reach out um, and and I have to practice reaching out when, not when I need to reach out, but when I don't need to reach out. Just to be like, hey, I just wanna say hi, hello, introduce myself. Uh, and, and then that way, when I am in that fight or flight, like you said, I'm all up in my amygdala and my emotions or whatever, um, I'm more comfortable reaching out because I've already made a connection when I was in a calmer state. So I love that you mentioned practicing and, and preparing for that moment when you, like you said, you're going to be in a fight or flight and you might shut down. Yeah. And I think you're bringing up such a great point. And I, I wonder if you would speak more to it because what is it about us all that makes us so loathe to say, I need help? Because I think all of us would heal faster from whatever it is we're healing from if we would just say, I need help. But I wouldn't say that because of what I thought it meant about me. So what do you think is, is the reason that we are so unwilling to say just those three little words? For myself, I love knowing the answers. And mm. I don't have a problem asking for help when I know specifically the kind of help I need. So for instance, if I go, you, you know, like I'm working on a math problem and there's a part where I'm stuck. I'm like, like I got the first three. I, I, I need help with figuring out how to get from this to that. Like what's, what am I missing? Or, um, you know, even emotionally, like, you know, I'm, I'm upset, whatever. Um, you know, I need help, but, a, a lot of times my fear is asking for help and not knowing the kind of help that I want. And I, and that's where I hesitate where I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Um, I, you know, I had some chest pains a while ago and it was so embarrassing because I didn't know. And the doctors didn't know. So then after a while I started to feel like it was all in my head, I'm like, am I making this up? Am I, um, 
Am I having some type of anxiety attack? Is it? Am I, is this some type of mental illness coming on? Because I mean, they ran a slew of tests. I mean, it, it was probably like close to a hundred grand. I have great insurance, um, but there was a point where I I remember looking at my girlfriend being like, you know, I'm just done going to the doctor. I'm not going to ask for help because they don't know. I don't know. It's probably all in my head. Uh, you know, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And then, they, you know, they finally they found out I have asthma. Um, but I, I don't like asking for help when I don't know specifically the kind of help that I need. Um, because I, it goes to like, to a feeling of inadequacy. Like if I don't know it, then I'm kind of feeling like you don't know it either. And I don't want to just be, um, talking my way to a solution. I want to know what I'm looking for. Uh, before I embark on that emotional journey, if that makes sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. It makes me think of what we were talking about earlier with creativity, because when we're so close to our problems, it's hard to have creativity, but just asking someone else for help, they have a different perspective. Their creativity is unhindered by our emotions. (laughs) And so they very often can offer something that we would never have thought of, right? And, And I think too, What's shame on us for feeling like we have to have all the answers or that we it means something about us that's negative if we ask for help. Like I, like you, um, I, I wouldn't ask for help because I thought it meant I was weak. If I were to ask for help, it meant I couldn't do it. It meant there was something wrong with me that I needed help and that I was too weak to do it myself. And I feel like that's one of the, the main outcomes of trauma is we feel so less than, we feel so unworthy. And that's, you know, that's basic to the human condition and just amplified by trauma. And so it makes us ask for help even less because we start to hide because we're so ashamed of who we are in, in so many different ways. And, and then we don't get the help that we need because not only will we not ask for it, but it seems like other people don't know to offer it. Or when they do, like my parents drove me nuts saying you need help. And I just found that so offensive, right? Cause I didn't want there to be anything really wrong. And, um, so I, I think there's sort of a cultural shift or a societal shift that we need around the idea of help. What if asking for help was the sh- like the sign of a superhero? What if asking for help was the sign of the smartest person in the room? Because I think it's the meaning we attach to those three words that causes the problem and not essentially what those three words are really about and the solutions that they can so often lead to. So it's an interesting question. You know, I, I have a joke about it and uh, it came from a, a real life situation where I was uh, at a bar. I used to work security at the standard downtown. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy asked me for a light. And I was like, uh, I don't have a light. I, I don't smoke, but I can help you find somebody, uh, you know, with a lighter. And he's like, I don't need your help. He's immediately defensive. And and it, that word help was really a trigger for him. Mm. And, and so I kind of wrote this joke about, 
you know, how guys will say any other word but help. Like, can I get some backup? Can I get some <laughs> assistance? Uh, uh, you know, can I get, um, I forget what my uh, third one was. But, um, but it's like, but, but help is the one word we, we won't use. We'll, we'll say everything else. Um, and, and I don't know why that word, that four-letter word help is so triggering so many people because when i think about it actually coming up help also kind of denoted that there was some psychological issue with you like oh you need help it was always uh in a derogatory way Mm -hmm. rarely had you heard you need help in a with a positive tone or affect so i think that experientially most people have uh uh, linked that word help to something's wrong with me um, just from the way it's been used in context like oh you need help and like I can't I'm not the one and okay also when people say that they're also saying it like I'm not the one to help you you got to go somewhere else because whatever you got going on is too much for me and so to hear that coming from a loved one to hear that coming from mm-hmm. a friend someone who's close to you who should who you should be able to lean on in your time of need and help you're like well where else am i gonna go if you're not if you're you know if your parents are saying that you need Mm. help you're like you're my parents how are you like not saying hey how can we help that's the you know so there's that part of like wow you're not offering to help you're saying i need to go somewhere else and then you're not giving me a place to go so there's so many layers to that I think that's true. And I think even in situations where people are offering to help, um, because for example, like my mom was dying to help me. She would have done anything. She was like, talk, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> like, I cannot talk about what happened. It was too horrific. And I don't even have words to describe it. And the fear that comes up, I'm going to explode in this fear. So even when people want to help, I'm not even sure that they, they always know how to help in the way that's most useful for us, right? Because sometimes, and my mom learned over the years, sometimes, and like she, she stopped trying to get me to talk about it. Uh-oh, I have a, have a new, hey, Gibbs, I have two therapy dogs that work in my practice. One is 14 and super chill, and she knows to be quiet. And we have a little therapy dog in training who's just one, and we just adopted about a month ago, and he's still learning. You need to hush up, dude. So um, my mom, through the years together, she learned to stop offering to help. And instead she would do things like this. She would, I lived in New York city and she lived out um, 45 minutes um, north of the city. And she would call me and she would say, I'm coming in to pick you up. I just want you to get in the car. You don't have to talk. You need to get out of that apartment. So just get in the car. You don't have to talk. And we're going to the museum of modern art, or we're going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or we're going to the Whitney, and we're just going to be in silence together. And you're just going to be out of the apartment for a few hours. But you do need to come out 
because, you know, we isolate and we withdraw with PTSD. And, and so I would do that a lot. And so she stopped trying to help in the way that she thought would be helpful. And she started trying to help in the way that she thought would be useful rather than helpful, which was an interesting shift that I didn't appreciate at the time. Um, but looking back, you know, I, I've had to apologize to her and appreciate her a lot since my recovery. But it was really helpful in a useful way to not be given the help that she thought I needed or that I would resist, but to just, okay, let's just go sit in this gallery. I loved the Metropolitan Museum of Art has this beautiful garden gallery, and we would just go sit there and look at the sculptures in total silence. But that was really helpful. And it met me where I was, because a lot of times, too, I think either we don't know how to ask for help because we don't know what kind of help we need, or someone tries to give us help that would be right for them, but it's not necessarily right for us. And you have to meet someone where they are. And a lot of times, if they don't know where they are, then it makes it even more difficult for you to meet them there. So you sort of have to get creative and, and figure out, you know, what is something that they like to do that you can facilitate for them to have an experience that feels slightly better than the one they're having, but with no strings attached. Like my brother would show up sometimes um, and he would say, and he would just hold up two concert tickets and he'd be like, and he would just say to me, you, me, March 12th at the Beacon or at Madison Square Garden. And there's another, another experience where I get out of the apartment, I get out of my head, I don't have to talk. It connects me to something good because he, he knew the bands that I loved. So you can help someone without, quote unquote, helping them and without them even asking, right? So there's, there's a lot in that help segment to unpack, to unpack. I love that whole idea of you, me, the bacon. The, the bacon, the beacon. The beacon. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm starving. I, I, I just started having bacon <laughs> for breakfast. Uh, this I, past week are you on the keto diet <laughs> so the, all right that's this is a whole other wormhole but it it's so intricately linked to mental health mm. coping with trauma and we talked about eating disorders yeah um and i've constantly talking about my sugar addiction and and i bring it up because i've noticed how my consumption of sugar, processed sugar especially, but even from fruit, um, can lead to depressed mood, mm. irritability, mm -hmm. restlessness, and suicidal ideations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the side effects are immediate. Uh, I, I immediately sense a, a shift, a, a dysregulation in my emotions and uh, my ability to be present. Um, and even physically, I immediately feel how it, a gas, a blow, like I, I feel like there's a layer. I was reading a book, um, who was it? I forget, but she talked about, oh, Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke. Mm. And she was talking about how this guy, um, um, God is eating under control and not only did his clothes fit, but his skin fit. Mm. And I thought that was such a great mm. description of 
you know, someone who's not in, I don't want to say in shape, but in alignment with where they, where they could, where they, uh, I don't want to say should be, but where they can be optimally. And, and it's so true because I can feel my skin fit differently when I'm eating in alignment. And so going back to what I'm eating, um, I found that high protein, high fat works very well for me. And uh, at the exclusion of fruits and vegetables, vegetables cause a disturbance. I don't do well. I do well uh, with herbs, but not like broccoli. Uh, I can do cauliflower a little bit. But mostly protein and fats. That's my sweet spot. And then when I looked up Inuits, I had a friend who was third generation Inuit. And I was like, what do you guys eat? You're like in a, in a frozen tundra for six months. And he said they, they kill some 2,000-pound animal, uh, uh, like a, a moose or a seal or something. And then they eat that for six months. You know, they, they freeze it, and then piece by piece they eat that. And then maybe have a handful of berries um, on a day-to-day basis that they've collected in the, in the, in the, more, in the summer and spring. And so it, it, was, it was eye-opening because I'm still relearning how to eat, like you said, for me. Not mm-hmm. based off the government food pyramid <laughs> or... Uh, with my, you know, I've hired dietitians and things like that. So I'm learning about Leo flowers and, and what allows me to show up and, and, and improve my sleep, et cetera. So a, a keto. Yeah, I guess, but I'm not thinking of it as keto. I'm just like protein and fats, you know? I love that. And I think it's such a great point. I'm paleo because I, I long ago realized, okay, certain things just don't do well for me. And paleo is really good for me. I have tons of energy. I sleep great. I sleep eight hours a night. And and I only like either I wake up on my own or I wake up because the alarm goes off, which means I really could like maybe I could sleep nine hours. You know, on vacation I sleep 10. So um I think when you support your mental health with the nutrition that's right for you, not what's right for anybody else. I'm hypoglycemic. So like you know, there are some people, um, oh, there are some people, I mean, I'm, I can see his, his face in my mind right now. And I'm, oh, Jesse, what's his last name? You know, he's married to the woman who founded Spanx. What's his last name? He's an author. You know who I mean? I know um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Jesse talks about he only, he doesn't eat anything except fruit until noon. You know what? I would be like doing a face plant at my desk if I did that. It's too much sugar for my body. I just immediately pass out. So I think it's really important to recognize how your food impacts your mood and to eat in a way that feels good to you. But you have to be really careful, right? Yes, it's it's Thank you. Thank you. Um, because I think you have to be really careful. Like it can feel really good to sit down with a bag of potato chips. So we're talking about what physically 
feels good, not what emotionally feels good, right? So it, I think that's a powerful place to come to because then you realize part of the way you feel are the choices you're making. Like I have clients who come to me and they're like, I'm, I'm anxious all the time. And I look at what they're eating. And I'm like, well, of course you are. You're drinking coffee all day. You're drinking Red Bull in the afternoon. And you're adding into that ice cream, cookies, and croissant. Like anybody would be anxious at that point. So like, no wonder you're not sleeping. And when you start taking that stuff out, it's amazing how much better people feel. And what you've been thinking was your mental health issue is really your nutritional issue. So I love that you brought that up. So, you know, to go a little further into this, what's interesting, what I found is my sex drive has increased exponentially. Mm. And I'm bringing this up, you know, we usually don't talk about sex, but physicality, we talked about dance and tango and intimacy. What's fascinating is that I've discovered that now because I'm not going to my drug foods, uh, of the sugar and the carbs and things like that, which were numbing my feelings, numbing my hurt, numbing my pain, numbing my disappointment, numbing my despair. Um, I also didn't realize I was also numbing my joy, my excitement, my anticipation, yeah. uh, my yeah. vitality. And now that I've removed that layer of of sugar, the blood flow is exponential. And and I bring it up to say that a lot of times what we think are relational issues where, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just not into you. Well, yeah, because you're probably into the foods. You're probably into the drugs. You're probably into uh, the gambling or into the porn. And that's creating this layer between you and your intimate partner that go. So you're subconsciously not really or consciously not aware of. And you're thinking it's the person when it's the poison. Oh, what a great quote. That's a tweetable. I do. You should tweet that because I also think what you're you're talking about, you're not into all those things because you are out of yourself. Because with all of what you're talking about, that numbing, that is dissociation, you know, and we don't educate each other enough about what dissociation is really about. You know, in dissociation, you have two main, you know this because you're psychologically trained, but I wish somebody had told me this, that dissociation is normal and you can have depersonalization where you feel disconnected from who you are and your own self and your body. You can have derealization, like you feel completely disconnected from reality and the world. And when I used to sit in therapy and tell my therapist, look, you're looking at me and you're seeing me here, but I'm actually, and I would hold my hand up three feet to the right side of my head. And I would point to that hand and I'd be like, I'm over here. Like you're looking at the physical me, but the real me is out here. And not once did he say, Michelle, that's dissociation. That's totally normal. Because I walked around thinking like, I'm nuts. And this is why I'm in therapy because I don't even feel like I'm in my body. And I think what you're talking about 
proliferates that experience, right? Because when we get that numb and that disconnected, we are never inside our body in a way that feels present. And then we blame ourselves or we blame everybody else or whatever it is. And we don't realize that it's the default that we're engaging in that is causing all that. And when you start to get conscious, and this brings us back to what we were talking about earlier, when you start to get really conscious and you acclimate to that, then you can start to integrate back into yourself with real deliberate choices and actions like what you're doing with your food. And you see how quickly you completely change not only your relationship with yourself, but your relationship with a significant other person. It's such a... It's such a a powerful thing. Yeah. It's like, are you turning towards your drug? Are you turning towards connection? Are you turning towards Mm. the poison? Are you turning towards the person? It's, it it really is these small choices. And, and it's funny because the, the turning towards is a small, it's a small degree, right? Mm. Left Mm -hmm. or right. It's, it's not a 360. It's not a, the shift doesn't have to be massive as you talked about, uh, gradient, small, gradual. You can slowly start working your way back towards that person, slowly start working your way back towards meaning, towards purpose. Um, but it, it starts with, like you said, recognition. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in terms of, uh, you know, recovering from trauma, healing from trauma? We talked about, uh, you know, the Argentine tango, the importance of movement, um, the importance of connecting with others, connecting with ourselves, recognizing uh, that we're even in a space that does makes us feel less than good. Um, is there any other part of this process that we need to mention? You know, I think one thing that we don't talk about enough is deliberately creating your identity because nobody teaches us that like you mentioned yoga is in school now um so i have a nephew who's eight and when he was in first grade they started his core curriculum at school involved yoga and meditation and i remember thinking holy cow who could i have been what kind of coping skills might i have had at the time of my trauma if someone had started me in yoga and meditation at the age of six right so um so i think one thing that they don't teach us is how do you define who you are how do you choose who you are how do you decide who you want to be nobody teaches us that and then we don't have a strong connection to a self that feels really good we are just that default person who evolved through all these experiences without any conscious deliberate intent and so i really i feel so passionately about identity work that i wrote a whole book about it because i think that in order to really heal from anything It has to be done on the identity level. You have to decide who you want to be now and who you want to be going forward. And I think that that begins with just being able to imagine the kind of person you would want to be, because a lot of times we don't have answers to that question after trauma. Um, And so I'll just tell you a quick story when when I was in my recovery and I was really aware I hated who I was and I didn't know like how, how am I going to 
become something else. And all I saw in my head was a blank white screen. Like there was no picture there of who I could be instead of who I was. And so I thought, okay, well, let's just start where I am. And I literally one day I took a, a legal pad and I, I was living on the 28th floor of a building uh, over near Central Park on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I just sat on, on the balcony and I filled five legal pages with all the things I hated about myself. So I took the piece of paper and I folded it lengthways in half. And, and on the left side of the page, I wrote all the things I hated about who I was. And when I was done with that, I went back and I wrote the opposite of each of those things on the right-hand column. And then I folded it so all I could see was the right-hand column. And I thought, okay, well, I don't know if this is who I'm going to turn into, but this is a start. This is the opposite of who I am today. And it gives me a way to start thinking about who I want to be. And, and I think that's really powerful for everyone to start thinking about who do you want to be that you would like better than who you are today. Because when we start deliberately creating that vision and then forming an intention around it so that we deliberately get out of default mode because you can't be in default mode and intentional at the same time so if you get really intentional and then you start making choices that are aligned with your intention that's predicated on the vision and then you start taking actions on those choices built around those intentions and that vision then you you know you don't even have to try that hard. You just start creating the person that you've always wanted to become. And then you can tweak it and it changes along the way. But I, I, I just think concluding the answer to your question, I, I just think we really need to work on the level of identity. It's not about, well, if I could just pop enough pills of Ambien and I sleep better, I'd be fine. You know, you won't be fine. You will not be fine. You will just be addicted to Ambien. You'll be sleeping but not well. So it's it's not the level of the symptoms that has to be healed. It's the level of your your own identity and how it's gotten twisted, distorted, and morphed by the traumas that you've been through. And when you start to work on that level, you start to sleep because you start to reclaim control over who you are and how you think and what you feel. And that's the reason that you start to sleep. It doesn't work in the reverse. You don't get rid of the symptoms and then you feel better. You do the work in the deepest part of who you are to decide and to build the person you want to be that it then pushes out into the more surface area of the symptoms and they naturally go away. Like, for example, I never worked on healing my eating disorder. It was simply, and I tell this to all my clients, the better you feel, the more you will heal. The more I danced, the better I felt. The more connected I was in myself, the less I needed to starve myself because I could manage. I started to figure out, and this brings us full circle, I started to figure out I can handle it. Yes, I can. And if I know I can handle it, whatever it is in any moment, then I can let go of that trauma addiction I had that caused me to have that eating disorder addiction that caused me to have all these other behaviors that were not good for me. Because when you settle into that place of identity where you feel solid and deeply connected to who you are and you've chosen who you want to be, then you know 
that if you're on the side of the road with your wife and your two kids and some weird band of modern day pirates pulls up next to you with guns, you know, I can handle it. And you will, because you've done that work at the deepest level to hold and anchor yourself in there. And from there, you can do anything. So I do believe that's, that's the key to healing is that identity piece. And I really hope that as the world evolves and moves forward, identity is given more of its due. It's not something that we talk about, but it is a huge part of who we are. I love it. It just feels like a great place to wrap this up. We brought it full circle back to, um, Oh, I forgot what you said was a full circle. My brain just escaped me. The, the movie you were watching. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is all, um, it's close to lunchtime, so now my, my, my blood sugar is dropping. Um, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Earlier, I know you mentioned mm-hmm. um, Judy Crane and Susan Jeffers. Are there mm-hmm. any books that you would recommend to anybody who's experiencing trauma? Absolutely. I love Babette Rothschild. I love Robert Scare. I love, um, oh, who wrote Waking the Tiger? You know that book, right? Um, Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma, Peter Levine. Um, I also love Judith Herman, wrote a seminal book about PTSD. It's so spot on. I love Bessel van der Kolk for his passion. His books are a little dense, so they're not that easy to read. Um, I love all those. I love Courtney Armstrong, writes some great books about healing. I've written three that are very action-oriented and and offer step-by-step guided processes. So um, that'll get you started, anybody who really wants to sort of dive into this space. But then the thing is, I would also say, you know, read outside the space, right? Norman Doidge has great, great work on neuroplasticity and how the brain changes. And, And understanding that about your brain will give you new creativity in your approach to healing because you'll understand how much your brain is an organism designed to change. So, you know, I, I was almost, it took me 24 years to be diagnosed with PTSD. And you could say at that point, what hope was there for me, but I got it done. My very first client had had PTSD since she was two. She was 48 when we started working together. That was in 2009. Today, 2021, I still get email from her every month telling me the new thing that she's doing in her life and how wonderful it is and how much fun she's having. And look, the work we've done this is what it's led her to. So we can change whether you've had trauma for four hours, four days, four years, or four decades, you can change. So I would read not just books about trauma, but books about change. Gabby Bernstein, I love her books. They're all about the spirituality of change. So um, think wide and broad. And I'll, I'll go out on a little limb here. I'll just pull back the curtain a little bit. But I love, I love Abraham and, and the Abraham Hicks books are phenomenal in terms of giving philosophy for change and, and exercises that are concrete and implementable. So I I think there's, there are so many ways you can, can go 
with with reading about trauma some of it's trauma related all my books are trauma related and babette and uh levine and scare we're all focused on trauma but these other people are focused on things that support trauma recovery in in really creative ways and i think that giving your brain that full scope just it's like adding more colors of paint to your palette and the more colors you have the more creative you can be and how you get where you want to go um and then are there any fictional books that you would recommend i can't believe you just asked me that yes that is I can't believe you just asked me that. Okay. All right. I'm just going to, yes. So my favorite book about healing trauma is called, it, it's, it's a, it's a novel. It's nobody's ever asked me that Leo. So when we're off air, you're going to have to tell me why you asked me that question. Cause I'm stunned, but um, my favorite book is called set this house in order, a romance of souls. It is by a guy named Matt Ruff, R-U-F-F. He wrote it for a friend of his who has dissociative identity disorder. So for those of you who, who you know, the three faces of Eve or Sybil, it's, it's like that, that multiple personality. Um, I, we all as humans have many parts within us. It doesn't mean you have a different personality for each part. It just means you have parts. Like I had my survivor part, my warrior part, my healing part. I had all these parts. Um, we all have that. And in 2006, I was at probably the nadir of my trauma recovery and really struggling. And I terrified my mother because I tried to explain to her, look, it's like there are five women in my head and I don't know which one's supposed to be in charge. And I didn't know anything about parts. And I didn't, and my mom like just turned white and she said, are you telling me you have multiple personalities because we need treatment? And I was like, no, it's, it's, it's not personalities. It's like all these different parts, these different parts of me. And it's like, they don't know how to work together. And I didn't know what that meant. And I was just alone with it. So I was doing this thing, which I highly recommend. I knew I was very disconnected from myself. So I was playing this game with myself that I still play today about getting in touch with my intuition. And what I did was constantly do stuff by impulse, not addictive impulse, like the feeling, the kinesthetic impulse to try something, to do something, to turn left or right. I would walk, like when I was teaching in Manhattan, I would walk from my apartment to the university. There were 50 different ways you could go, but instead of being as fast as I could and as expedient and efficient, which was my trauma mindset, I would walk to the end of each block and just ask my body, do I go left, right, or forward? And I was just teaching myself to defer to intuition because I think that's important. And um, so one of the things that I used to do was go to the library and not have a plan. I would walk into the library and I would ask myself, left, right, or forward? And I would just keep doing that and end up in a stack. And then I would just stand in front of the stack and close my eyes and just let my hand reach out for a book. And it just I would just let this impulse guide my hand. It would either go up, straight, or down, right? And I pulled this book off the shelf. Now, full disclosure, I hate reading fiction. So I would never have brought myself to the fiction part of the library. So I didn't even realize that's where I was. I pulled this book off the shelf. I checked it out. I didn't even look at it till I left. And I walked out. I'm like, oh, crap. I have to read this fiction book. Ugh, intuition. I am not pleased. And I sat down and this book floored me because the whole book 
is about a trauma survivor healing trauma and dealing with these parts. And it's all about how to integrate the parts into one system that works. And it be, it is this gorgeous metaphor for healing and this beautiful, I actually use it. I adapted what I, what the book was about and the process that I created for myself, because by the end of that summer, I had one, one part <laughs> that was in control. And, and that was what the book was about. The book was about that um, the metaphor was that you have this house inside your head and the house has a balcony. They call it a pulpit. I like the word balcony better. So the house had a balcony and all these parts live inside the house. And the one that's in the balcony runs the body that day. So all summer I would wake up and ask myself who's in the balcony because I needed it to be the part that I wanted to run the body, like not the eating disordered part and not the depression part, not the suicidal part. Like I needed the healing part in the balcony. Or for me, it was really the warrior part. Like she was going to get this healing crap done no matter what it took. So every day I would wake up and I'd like visualize and feel in myself, put the warrior in the balcony, just put her in the balcony. And I would go through the day tapping into her, like what, how would she make this decision? Right. And so that book was a major turning point in my recovery. And then I adapted that process. I'm a hypnotherapist. So I adapted that whole process and I, I use it now with clients. We build their house, like really detailed. We build the house. We identify all the parts that belong in there. We get them all situated and then they decide who they want in the balcony. And then they literally wake up every day and start asking themselves who's in the balcony. It's powerful. And so I highly recommend that book as not just a metaphor for healing, but as an inside look at the crazy that trauma can create. Crazy, I mean that in the most affectionate way because I thought I was crazy for, for so many years. Um, and, and also for the way that it, it also provides a way out. So thank you for asking. I, I love that. And, and I'll tell you on air, you know, um, why I asked that question. First, I've never asked that question before and we're at like almost 400 episodes um and for some reason um it just popped in my brain to ask you that question second i asked that question because i read a quote that said every book is a self-help book i've never read a book and not gotten insight into life, into behavior, into identity, into relationships, into connection, into the world. I, I've, I've never, I mean, whether I've read half the book or a paragraph, there's something that I've read that I've, that's stuck with me, that I've taken with mm. me. Um, I'm reading Anna Karenina right now. There's so much in there that is just uh percolating through my bloodstream right now Mm. um and i i get excited at the thought of being able to sit with that book Um, well that's a classic and gorgeous book really neat really neat well and i love what you just said too it's you followed your intuition right? You just were guided to, to ask something that didn't make sense on the surface, maybe, but had a real impulse behind it and was highly connected. 
And, you know, the other thing, when I think about self-help books, the older I'm getting, I'm, I'm just finding that, um, for, at least for myself, it creates too much of a high expectation for behavior mm. mm-hmm. that um, I can't live up to. And there's so much work that the books are asking me to do. And I'm like, I haven't done any of the work from any of the other self-help books. And I'm bringing in... <laughs> You know, like I have so much homework that's piled up and I have workbooks and I don't I don't need another. So I need to reread the books that I do have and then mm. do that work before I, I bring in another one. Um, and and I just love uh, and also, you know, Yuval Harari talks about this. We remember stories where mm-hmm. our brains are wired remember mm-hmm. stories not steps so mm-hmm. i i think about that also and so it's beautiful that you mentioned that um you know he creates this metaphor and a, a visualization of who's 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 on the balcony who's who's got the con right now who's running the ship that's uh, right and so uh i appreciate you sharing that with us how can yeah. people find you michelle rosenthal Oh, I'm everywhere. You could just Google me, Michelle with one L M I C H E L E Rosenthal, or you can just hop on to my trauma coach.com. We have links to all our social from there. Um, so it's an easy one-stop shopping kind of place. There's a free audio on, on my trauma coach.com because I believe in brain training. So um, it's, it's just about 20 minutes, but it will train your brain for peace and calm. And if you use it every day, and I just, uh, I was watching, you know, the neuropsychologist, Carol, Dr. Caroline Leaf uh, did a podcast recently, and she was saying that there was a um, a study that was done that, you know, we've all heard it takes 30 days to create a new habit that takes on a life of its own. But for trauma, the research shows that it actually takes 62 consecutive days of reinforcing a new habit for the trauma brain to create a new habit. So, um, you know, 62 days of brain training, that's powerful. And to drop down to a, pay, a place of peace and calm, my, my clients, they don't get through it. They start to fall asleep. That's how calm they get. And I have uh, somebody in my audience just reached out to me recently to say, I, I never remember what you say after the first half. Is that okay? And I'm like, sure, because your brain's like in there doing whatever it's doing. <laughs> you know, your unconscious is listening all the time, even if your conscious mind has stopped paying attention. So, so I think it's powerful what we can do with brain training. So um, mytraumacoach.com, you can just download it. It's free. You can use it, see what happens, share it with other people. Because if this whole world had more peace and calm, just imagine who we could all be. I love that. And then last question I ask this of all my guests is always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Mm. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Michelle? Well, here's the funny thing. So I, I told you about that client, my first client. She was two at the time of her trauma, 48, when I met her. I met her because at the time I had um, I had come out of my trauma recovery and I was filled with this fiery passion that I still have today. Like if I had just had the education that I needed and the information, 
I could have healed three decades earlier. I, I lost almost 30 years of my life because nobody told me what I needed to know. And nobody helped me find the resources that would lead me out. And um, so I started, I didn't know what to do with myself. I, I was, nobody taught me about identity. So I came out of my trauma recovery I just didn't know who I was. Now, how am I supposed to live like this? I have no symptoms, but I also have no life. I have no job, no career, like no family, like none of the things that a 40-year-old was supposed to have. And so I was complaining to my brother one day, like, I just don't know what to do. And he said, look, you've always been a writer since way before your trauma. You've been a writer since you were seven. Just start writing about what you're thinking and you'll figure it out. And he said, but don't do it in a journal. That's just so old school. There's this new thing. It's called a blog. Just blog what you're thinking. And so I, I don't know if you remember blogspot.com. I went up, I got my little page and I started blogging and that little page went viral. And so many people started reaching out and asking for more that that one little page wasn't enough. So I built a website. It was the first civilian layperson website for education about PTSD. And the reason I'm telling you this is this woman, I'll just call her Lynn, reached out to me and she emailed me through my website. And she said, I'm going to kill myself. But before I do, I just want you to know how much I appreciate what you're doing. Your website is amazing. The information you're offering is so important. And I just want you to know, even though I can't live like this anymore, I know how many people you're going to help with what you're doing. And I want you to know it matters. And I emailed her back, whoa, wait just a second. Now you have to understand, I had just gotten trained in neuro-linguistic programming. I was not a certified professional coach yet. I am now. Um, I was not trained in hypnosis yet. I, I did all of those things that year, but I did NLP first. And so when she reached out to me, I didn't have all my certifications. I didn't have any clients because I only was getting trained because so many people were asking me to help them personally that I thought I can't do this without like having a real, like a certificate. Like I need somebody to make sure I know what I'm doing. And, um, so I wrote back to her, thank you so much for your email. I am glad that, that you appreciate what I'm doing. But before you decide to kill yourself, could we just talk on the phone for a minute? And she agreed. And so I called her and I said, look, I, as long as you're planning to kill yourself, could you just defer that a little bit? Because I have an idea. I just got out of this training and I think I can help you. And if you would be open to it, I'd like to try. And she said to me, well, I, I don't have any money, so I can't pay you. And I said, doesn't matter. I've never had a client. So together, let's just sort of dive in and see what happens. And I worked with her every Friday at four o'clock for 18 months because I was new and she was in the deep end of the pool. And together we figured it out. And um, that's what I would say to somebody who is thinking, I'm just going to end it all because I told you earlier, it's now 2021. And I have an email from her every single month 
giving me the update in her life. She's become an artist. She's got grandchildren. They've built a pirate ship in the backyard. She makes a fairy garden. Like it's incredible what she does. And this is a woman who was going to kill herself. When I started working with her, she was on three medications, working with a psychologist and a psychiatrist and hadn't gotten out of her bed in weeks. She was watching the cutting edge. I don't know if you remember that movie on a loop on her VCR 24 hours a day. And now she's this. So to anyone who is thinking, I'm just going to end it all, I would say not so fast. Find somebody that you believe in what they're doing, that you feel you resonate with their mission or their perspective or the way they're trained and reach out for help because it would have been really wrong for her or me to follow that dark, twisted impulse to end it all, because you're always just like you said earlier, it's just like six degrees. If you just turn a little bit, you can get into the shining light of, of some connection that will help you move forward. And, and that is how I would answer that question. You just need one person that you can connect to. And they are out there. So before you decide to make that ultimate decision, just spend a little bit of the energy that it would take to follow through on that to go in the opposite direction and find someone to connect to to move yourself forward i love that go in the opposite direction uh michelle rosenthal thank you so much for joining us thank you so much listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you turning in the other direction, for you picking up the phone. I know when we're in despair, that phone is so heavy. It's the heaviest thing in the world when we want to call for help. But I believe in you. You can do it. You can do one bicep curl and get that phone up to your ears and mouth and, and call someone. Call Michelle Rosenthal. Go to my therapist uh coach dot is my therapist coach. My right? trauma coach. My trauma my trauma coach. Um, and remember, in all the show notes, I have suicide prevention numbers for, for no matter what country you're in. You could be in Argentina, you can be in Sri Lanka, Budapest, New Zealand, um, Canada, Detroit, wherever you are. You could be in, in Florida. Um, there are international suicide hotline numbers. If you can't call, there are text numbers. Uh, you can chat. There are emails. There are groups. There's someone right now waiting to talk to you, to hear from you. Call an enemy. You'd be surprised. Like mm -hmm. enemies will listen to you in your darkest moments because they revel in your despair. So you can, you can unload everything on your enemies because they love it. You just need one person to connect with. That's it. Call them. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to mm -hmm. tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Michelle. Leo, thank you. You're doing amazing, amazing things. And I'm so glad that I had the privilege of spending this time with you. What a treat. <laughs>